Hey, it's Mother's Day. Um, we need to uh, pause for a moment. We need to acknowledge to uh, those ladies present that are motherly, that we greatly appreciate them. Uh, my mom is 90 years old. Somebody asked her, uh, I guess Dan asked her yesterday, how it felt to have a son who's 60. And uh, she, she's... Uh, been very good to me for 60 years, and I appreciate that very much, getting a little chance to get even with her. In fact, she she uh, told me yesterday that I was being kind of feisty. <laughs> but uh, Mom, appreciate you and your ministry to uh, so many people, but mostly to me, and I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Uh, my wife always said that I'm supposed to give her Mother's Day cards, and I hardly ever do it because I say, you're not my mother. How can I give you a Mother's Day card? But I did this year, and uh, appreciate your motherliness. The wonderful way you raised our kids. It was a blessing to watch. Um, the rest of you moms, you're, uh, you're special people, and you need to realize that uh, God has given you a huge responsibility, but with that responsibility, I believe, a special blessing. Um, more than, than the kids that you've raised, uh, they're sometimes a curse, but uh, just kidding. But uh, motherhood is a, is a blessing from God. Uh, we see that in the uh, story of, of Hannah and the, uh, the way that God blessed her uh, and answer her request for a child. And uh, it's, it's our, our joy here at Great Adventure to uh, watch a lot of young moms developing and uh, growing in their, in their uh, responsibility. And we want you to know that we appreciate you and that our prayers are for you and that uh, we understand that your efforts are hardly ever rewarded, but we do want to recognize them. So uh, let's uh, pray for our moms right now. God, we thank you so much for the incredible blessing that you've given to every human being, and that is that they have a mom. Recognize that uh, there's a lot of times when motherhood goes unappreciated. Uh, even in our culture, it's sometimes demeaned. And we want to stop and, and recognize that it's your great blessing to us and your wisdom that has provided moms for us. And we thank you for them and pray, God, that you would enrich their lives, that uh, even today, especially today, they would know your hand of mercy and kindness and love and uh, that they would have a sense of your presence and peace as they uh, are honored on this, uh, this day. Bless them all. And thank you for that, in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Read us a story, Dad. Read us a story. That was the, uh, the theme every night about bedtime. I can never, I just can't resist these opportunities to talk about child raising. I won't go off on it, Josh. I'm going to stick to the text today. But make bedtime a great event. Instead of being a brawl, instead of being this time of, 
of confrontation turn bedtime into the biggest party you can imagine. You got to start a little bit early because they still need to get to bed before midnight. But you got to make it a great time. We used to have parties every night at bedtime, and and that was the con, you know. Hurry up and get your pajamas on, cause we're gonna have a party. <laughs> and they'd scurry around the house, and they'd get all ready for bed, and great. And Mom would bring up cookies and milk, and Dad would pull out the storybook. And I would always try and read in such a way that they'd want me to quit. I'll give you a little example. <laughs> You have to know that I learned this from my father. And as I listen to my sons read to their daughters, they learned it from me. It goes like this. Once there were four children whose names were Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. This story is about something that happened to them when they were sent away to London during the war. Because of the air raids, they were sent to the house of the old professor who lived in the heart of the country, ten miles from the nearest railroad station, two miles from the nearest post office. He had no wife, and he lived in a very large house with a housekeeper called Mrs. McGrady and three servants. Are you getting the picture? In spite of that lifeless, emotionless reading, my kids would love it. And we went through story after story. And uh, the C.S. Lewis collection was especially important to us. We had a great time together. Well, once in a while, a story comes along that really changes our lives. Once in a while, there's a story that captures our attention and we're, we're riveted by it. You rarely find a story that actually changes your life. But we have one this morning. In fact, we're opening up a story. At, I think this was Gregory's suggestion. We're opening up a story that is life-changing. And I'll promise not to read it in that lifeless, emotionless manner, okay? Because this story is so good that we cannot ignore it. And we cannot undermine it in any way. In fact, I've prayed and prayed and prayed, God, there is no way that a human being can do justice to this story. Only the Holy Spirit can teach this story and tell this story. And that's what we want to have happen throughout this series as we spend time in the book of Mark. Let me read the introduction from, I hate to say it, from the message. Okay? Don't tell anybody we use the message here at Great Adventure. Okay? Just kidding. Peterson says this, Mark wastes no time in getting down to business. A single sentence introduction and not a digression to be found from beginning to end. An event has taken place that radically changes the way we look at and experience the world. And he can't wait to tell us about it. There's an air of breathless excitement in nearly every sentence he writes. The sooner we get the message, the better off we'll be. For the message is good incredibly good. And we get to touch that story in the next several weeks. But more importantly, that story 
gets to touch us. The good news from our brother Mark. God is here. God is here. And He's not here in judgment. He's not here in condemnation. He's on our side. What a story. What a message. And this, above all messages that have ever been given, above all stories that have ever been told, changes the way we look at life. It changes the way we think. It makes new people out of us. And if if event like like what Mark was telling about happened today, you would have Fox News doing 24-7 in its coverage. How many of you catch uh, cable news once in a while? Anybody? Students, where are you? No cable news? Hard to believe. Just old people watch cable news. All right. Cable news is nonstop story. And it drives you crazy. A couple weeks ago, a young lady disappeared two days before her wedding. That poor lady has been nonstop in the news. Have they, have they gotten over it yet? They given up on her? They're still? Poor lady. Poor lady. Now they're going to put her in jail for getting scared about going. I don't know. It's crazy. 24 Back in the 1930s, when there was a major story that happened, how did they communicate it? Didn't have cable news. What'd they do? How can, how could we possibly have lived? Well, they got the message out by saying, extra, extra, read all about it. You don't even know it. Some of you people don't even know what that's all about. The newspapers would put special editions out that had huge headlines telling the story. And whether it was the death of a president or a new pope being elected or a world war starting or ending, that news was communicated. Extra, extra, read all about it. And they would sell hundreds of newspaper on the day that they did extras. But before there were printing presses and before they could crank out these hundreds of newspapers, how did they do it? Well, if I, uh, if I read history correctly, they had what was known as the town crier. And there'd be an individual who would go up and down the streets of the community yelling at the top of his lungs what the story was. Why? Why all of this attention to story? Because we love stories. Life is story. And we have a story before us that is so incredible, so wonderful, that we need to take time to listen to it. The good news of Jesus Christ. The message begins here. Following to the letter, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Mark, what are you talking about? You're going to get used to having your name called out a lot these next few weeks. Mark, and it's going to wake him up every time. You know, it's good for doing this series. All right, no sleep for Mark in church for the next several months. Mark, what are you talking about? What's happening here? What's this voice of one, the prophet Isaiah? Isaiah wrote 
about seven, between 750 and 700 B.C. So we're talking a long time ago. And what he wrote was this. A voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised. Every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all mankind together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. 700 B.C. Wow! Get ready. Hang on to your hats. Prepare the way. In our, uh, in my lifetime anyway, we've had a demonstration of what this verse is talking about. Back in the 50s, Dwight D. Eisenhower said, you know what, we need an int- a national highway system. Uh, those of you that um, were born after 1970, after 1980, are you any there? Okay. After 1970, you have no concept of what it was like to take a trip. Uh, several years ago, my grandfather took uh, mom, brother, sister, maybe a couple others, out to Colorado to, to Camp Elam where he was going to do some speaking. We're talking way back now, Dan, long before probably you were born. But uh, anyway, we're talking a long time ago. I still remember that trip. All the way across beautiful Nebraska at 105 degrees in a car, get this, with no air conditioning. At an average speed of about 45 to 50 miles an hour. Unbelievable. It took six weeks to get out there, I swear. (laughs) Dwight Eisenhower said, you know, we need to do something about this. And so they got bulldozed and earth-moving equipment, and they actually did. They actually (coughs) tore down the hills, filled in the valleys, and made this beautiful interstate system that we have. And so now... You drive from here to Colorado and you say, what a breeze. I could do this three, four times a week without any problems. Oh, okay. All right. Well, anyway, the hills were lowered. The valleys were filled in. And, and it made progress much, much more uh, rapid and much more easy. Well, that was what Isaiah was calling for. Get ready. Fix it up because he's coming. He's coming. Now, according to Mark, 700 years later, someone showed up who was proclaiming that message. Excuse me. And what a guy this guy is. John the Baptizer. Scary fellow. What a strange one. According to the text... He had very strange dress. All right, leather garments tied around the waist with a a leather belt. Nicely groomed, as you can see. Strange diet. Guy ate grasshoppers. Fitting for someone who looked like that. Strange message. Very strange message. 
And yet it says the people left the city, went out into the wilderness. They absolutely thronged to him. By the hundreds, <coughs> they came to hear this man speak. And I ask you, why would anybody throng to somebody that looked like that? Well, maybe this will help. What's that? That's a picture of a tuning fork. You know, oh, well, I got, immediately I understand the application there. This, this explains everything, Leverence. No. We, we need to talk a little bit about tuning forks, okay? What's the, what's the characteristic of a tuning fork that uh, is mo- it's most noted for? Okay? Meaning what? Gregory, expand on that a little bit. Get a little scientific for us. Okay, a consistent frequency. That is, it disturbs the air around it at a consistent rate so that one tone and only one tone comes. When I talk, you're hearing probably, well, a mix of hundreds of tones. And when CP plays the cymbals and crashes them, it goes to thousands and your ear goes, okay? But with a tuning fork, one tone, vibrating. Now, If you take that tone, I don't know if you can read that, and stick the end of a vibrating tuning fork into a pan of water, you can actually visualize what's going on. You can actually see that that fork is moving back and forth at a consistent rate. Now, here's what's really exciting. I know you've been just on the edge of your seat with this explanation up till now, but here's where it really gets exciting. If you take that tuning fork strike it, and then bring it near, say, this guitar, you don't even have to touch it. But what's going to happen to one of those strings on that guitar? It'll it's going to start to vibrate. And you take it to this guitar, and it starts to vibrate. What do we call that? That's called a sympathetic frequency. Because that movement on the tuning fork can actually impact the air molecules so they start moving any other instrument that's tuned to that very same frequency. And you can stop the sound of the tuning fork and listen to the guitar or the piano or whatever else is tuned to that frequency. Now, get this. Get this. There had been 700 years of tuning. Okay? People's hearts were being adjusted. The strings were being tightened and loosened so that their sympathetic frequency would match this great frequency that God was going to give. I've already mentioned Isaiah, who gave his message about 700 B.C. And then for the next 300 years... God continually spoke through different people called the prophets to the point where the people got sick of hearing God talk to them. They said, please, we don't want any more of this God talk. And so God responded to them by putting them under bondage again and exile. And worst of all, 400 years of silence. God stopped talking to His people. 
Why? Because he was tuning their hearts. He was getting them ready. <coughs> Imagine if you were placed in solitary confinement. Imagine if that solitary confinement cell was padded and soundproofed so that you had little or no communication from the outside world. How long would it take before you went stark raving crazy? Not long, I'm told. I'd probably last about 30 minutes. Four hundred years of silence. And people were getting ready. So that even when a wild man, whoops, like that guy, came on the scene, they were ready to listen. God had tuned hearts. And it's a prayer of this church that your heart is tuned. Sometimes we sing, Come, fount of every blessing. What? What's the next line? Tune my heart to sing your praise. People of God, let's ask Him to tune our hearts. Father, this message is too good, too big for us to miss. Take your tuning fork and bring it close to our lives, God, and send that message right into the inner depths of our soul. Help us to be like those hungry people after 400 years of silence to be ready to hear the message that You have. Father, I thank You that it is not important who the messenger is, but that the message is what has purpose and meaning and function in our lives. God, don't let us miss it, I pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. John the baptizer was the messenger. And, 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 and that gives me hope. Because if people would listen to that unshaven, smelly, leather-clad, sandal-wearing, grasshopper-eating freak and hear the message, then maybe they'll listen when God speaks through another imperfect vessel. Pray that God will speak to your heart this morning. Because John came preaching a baptism of life change. Life change. That leads to, and notice, notice what's underlined there, it leads to, this baptism is not what creates the life change. And, and don't ever get mixed up in that. Okay? <coughs> this message, this baptism of life change leads to forgiveness of sins. Now, we have a problem in our culture. Our culture has eliminated the concept of sin. It's been very convenient. Because sin brings conviction to our hearts. Sin 
creates challenge for us. And so how we've dealt with that, since we're tired of hearing that message of sin and judgment related to sin, well, we'll fix that. We'll just eliminate sin. How do you do that? Well, sin, by definition, is falling short of a standard. And so all we have to do is change the standard so that we never fall short. And I have become the new standard. You have become your standard. That's the way our culture has dealt with this. And so there's no problem of sin. Today I feel like doing this. And since I'm the standard, it's not a problem. I'll just do it and everything's fine. Tomorrow, I may feel differently. But today, it's not sin for me. I don't have any problems in life then, do I? Do you see how empty and, and, and uh, shallow that viewpoint is? And yet, that's exactly what our culture has done. They've become the standard. They said, we've removed the problem of sin. Therefore, we don't need forgiveness of sin. Since we never violate the standard, because we're the standard. The problem is that's not true. Even if I were the standard, I would violate it. Even if you make your own standard, you still violate it. And there are consequences that go along with this. Now, the fact is that God is unchanging. The standard doesn't change. We're pretending, we're kidding ourselves when we think that that's not real. I was talking to uh, Andrew Mernick, Betty's stepdad, a week ago. And we were talking about uh, DNA. And his comment was, a few years from now, they'll be able to make perfect people. What do you think? Ain't going to happen, is it? You could, you could do all the DNA fixing you wanted to, and there would still not be perfect people. And my comment to him was, if only we could get rid of that sin nature. And that just went... Right over the top. He didn't even respond to it. And I'm praying that God will take that little conversation, touch his heart with it. Because you see, the real struggle that we have is that built inside of us is this desire to violate whatever standard comes down. And if I can recognize that and see that that insidious Operation inside of me is what really has caused the struggle throughout all of history. I'm going to make some progress in becoming the person God wants me to be. Um, I have to be careful about recommending this book because the title is so weird. But uh, Gregory has been pushing a book for me called Blue Like Jazz. Blue Like Jazz. It's actually a, it's almost like a Christian book. You know, I know with that title, you can hardly imagine it being a Christian book. But <laughs> Don Miller writes in there, and in the early chapters, he identifies this thing where he says, you know what? The struggle is human selfishness, human sin. And if I can come to grips with that and recognize that that's at the core of all the trouble, all the problem that exists in the world today, I can maybe make some progress in seeing a solution. Well, Jesus has come to provide that solution. And that's what Mark is talking about in this book, this business of forgiveness of sin. So John the Baptist proclaims this message. Come, 
experience a life change. Now, it was not his baptism that created the life change, but it was what would lead to the forgiveness of sin. Let's talk for a second about baptism, just so we're sure. There's lots of different concepts that are called baptism. And I want to just hit on them really, really quickly. In the Old Testament, there's a form of baptism and it's referred to by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 and 2. I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud They were, and they all passed through the sea. There it is. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Baptism, as I say in the title, equals <clears throat> identification. John the Baptist came preaching a baptism of life change. Life change. There was an identification by being baptized with this concept that I'm looking forward to life change. He said, there's one coming who will baptize you, who will identify you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And in the other, in the other epistles of the New Testament, there's this identifier called baptism that is associated with new life in Christ. We're not going to go any deeper than that, just so that you're aware that there's these different kinds of baptisms, and we'll talk about them more in detail at another time. What was John's message? Basically twofold. The first was, turn around. You're headed in the wrong direction. You need to refocus your attention <coughs> on someone who has the, forgiveness, the ability to forgive your sins. And the second part of his message was, he's coming. He's coming. And the thrilling thing is that the Spirit of God had tuned people's hearts to the point where they were saying, that's who I want to meet. That's who I want to see. I've been waiting all this time for the one who has the answer to the deepest need of my life. And John said, he's coming. Let me read again from the message. As he preached, he said, the real action comes next. The star in this drama will change your life. I'm just a stagehand, says John. But there's a star coming. He's going to be walking on the stage very soon. And his message will change your life. Get ready. Be prepared. His message will change your life. His baptism has the capacity to change you from the inside out. You will become a different person. That's the story. A story that has the capacity to make us different people. John said again, I I'm not the one. I I'm just here to point the way. And finally, one day, he looked up, he said, He's here! There He is! And the intention of the whole crowd turned. And they focused on one that John called the Lamb of God. The one who takes away the sin of the world. John baptized Jesus. And that sounds a little strange because here's John saying, you need to repent, you need to turn to this one. And, and Jesus comes and says, John, baptize me. 
<coughs> and the question uh, that, that comes to my mind is why? Well, obviously it was not for identification with the need for repentance. This was something different when it came to Jesus. In the case of Jesus, the baptism of John identified him as the Son of God. Listen to what the Scripture says. At this time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. The moment he came out of the water, he saw the sky split open and God's Spirit, looking like a dove, come down on him. Along with the Spirit, a voice, You are my Son. Chosen and marked by my love. You are the focus of my life. My beloved son. Incredible. And as Jesus came out of the water, he was identified by God as the one who had been promised for all those years. And people's hearts began to vibrate. They began to throb. They began to say, He's here. The message that I've been waiting for. The message that can change my life. He's here. And John was delighted when they turned their attention away from him personally and focused it on the Lamb of God. The one who had the capacity to take away the sin of the world. Well, we need to move the story along. Immediately following this baptism, Jesus left that area and went out into the wilderness for a time of temptation. That's a strange thing to me. And I've struggled with why would the Son of God need to be tempted? And I boiled it down to this. His temptation was for me. It was for my benefit. Let me try and explain. When Christ was tempted, <clears throat> He passed, no, He surpassed every test. Forty days in the wilderness, every time there was a test that came, He passed it. Whew, wouldn't that be great? Some of you have just finished. A few of you are yet to finish. You've got a whole other week, right, Sue? A whole other week before finals. What if you could say, I passed, no, I surpassed every test. In other words, you got 103% on every exam. Would that be all right? Jesus went to the test in the wilderness and passed every single time. More than passed, he surpassed it. In fact, he broke the testing machine. Wouldn't that be fun? That's the kind of test I'd like to take. Where I hop on that machine and I actually, I, I just blow it apart. And that's what Jesus did. Um, companies will spend thousands of dollars to test their equipment to make sure it'll last. And they run it and they run it and they run it and they run it until it falls apart. And I don't know how many hours of operation have to, have to take place before something is, is deemed suitable to put on the market. But, you know, for that treadmill up in my bedroom, I'll tell you what, that thing's going to last 500 years for the amount of, of use it's getting. 
But uh, it, it uh, you know, if it were used normally and in the right way, it should last three, four, five years, I would think, I hope. Okay? And they've tested that. Well, when Jesus got on the treadmill, he burned that baby out. Whatever test it was, he just destroyed the test machine. Some people say, well, you know what? Because he never sinned, that means he didn't pass. That's foolishness. Understand this, that he was tested far more than you have ever been tested. And he passed every time. There wasn't a test big enough, tough enough to stand up to Jesus. And I need that. You know why I need that? The author of Hebrews says, here's why you need it. We have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Why? Because it's been tested. It's been tried. And it's passed the test. How? We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have been one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet, was without sin. He passed every time. Failed any of those tests? Struggled with the exams? You've been there. You know what I'm talking about. I'm related to one who passed every single time. And you know what? He's sympathetic with me. Instead of Instead of lording it over me and proudly displaying his great wisdom and power, he says, you know what? I remember that test. It was awful. I remember how hard that was, but you know what? Because I've given you a new life, because I have died in your place, because I have changed you from the inside out, you no longer have to fail that test. Get on the treadmill with me. And we'll burn that baby out together. That's the kind of relationship I have. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Wow. What an invitation. Are you availing yourself of that kind of resource? It's in your checking account. Have you written any checks? It's already on your, your debit card. Okay? So cash that thing in. You don't have to be overtaken by sin. You don't have to be dominated by problems in your life. You have a relative who's been there and passed and now is sympathetic with you and wants to help you through. That's our great Jesus. That's our messenger. Well, Mark gives this incredible statement. The kingdom is here. At once this same... I'm sorry. After uh, passing along the beach of Lake Galilee, Jesus saw Simon and his brother Andrew net fishing. Fishing was their regular work. Jesus said to them, Come with me, I'll make a new kind of fisherman out of you. I'll show you how to catch men and women instead of perch and bass. They didn't ask questions. They dropped their nets and followed. 
And the story goes on to say that he saw James and John. They were fishing too. He gave them the same message. And they followed. And then it goes on in chapter 1 to show where Jesus actually asserted His authority over the demonic realm and cast a demon out of an individual. We don't think much of that in our culture. We need to. We need to recognize that there's enormous demonic influence in our culture. I'm not going to go off on that tangent. But it's everywhere. And it's incredibly powerful. But the one who is here on my behalf, on my side, is the one who has absolute authority over even the demonic realm. He healed Andrew and Peter's mom. So sick she couldn't get out of bed. Healed her in an instant. And Mark concludes this first section of his introduction of Jesus by telling the story of a man who had leprosy and Jesus healed him. I asked you to pray for Merlin Vandercraw this morning. I've agonized over that situation. Here's a man, a young man, wife, two boys, gifted, gifted musician, tremendous ability with the computer, a leader in the local church. He's a man that we need. <coughs> and he's dying of cancer. I felt the same way when we prayed for, for Daniel's dad, Jim. And we watched as, as cancer just tore into that man and turned him into an invalid. I remember the last time he was with us. Sitting there enjoying the Lord's Supper with us and then trying to walk from where we were even that short distance to the men's room. And he was incapacitated. He couldn't do it. And his boys ran to his side and carried him. What's going on? And my heart just cries out and says, Oh, God! Why do they have to suffer that way? Why does disease have to do that? CP has just come back from the funeral for his mommy. And instead of celebrating Mother's Day by giving her a call, he has the ache of his heart. Wouldn't it be cool if I could heal people? Not for my own glory. I promise you, it wouldn't be for my own glory. But to be able to go to, to Jim Aiken and say, Brother Jim, be healed. Put my hand on him. And watch that cancer just scream out of his body. Last summer, Merlin would come home from chemotherapy, be sick for two weeks. So sick that he couldn't keep any food down. His body racked by pain. Diarrhea, vomiting. You know, I go two days with the flu and I, I just, life is nearly over. It would be for two solid weeks and then guess what? He'd have a week off and he'd go back for another dose of, of chemotherapy and it would start all over again. And I'd cry, God, why can't I just go and heal the man? And I cry out to Jesus, why don't you heal him? You know what he says? I will. 
I'll make him perfect. But it'll be in my time and on my terms. And I have to say, yes, Lord, I submit to you. But here was one who was in absolute control, the very one that I prayed to. And he said, you have leprosy? The guy said, yeah, and if you wanted to, you could heal me. And Jesus said, you know what? I want to heal you. And he was healed. If you don't love him, you've got to at least respect him. And if you respect someone, you've got to listen to what they have to say. And he says, come to me. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Now hear what he says. Take my yoke upon you. That means we're going to be teamed up. We're going to go together in this. You can't go off on your own. You can't go do your own thing. You've got to work with me in this. He's willing to put the yoke around our neck and, and pull the weight for us. But we can't go our own way. And you know your heart. Your heart, like my heart, says, you know what? I'll call him when I have leprosy, but I want him to leave me alone the rest of the time because I want to make my own choices and my own decisions about life. And he says, I'm sorry. It doesn't work that way. Come. I'll give you the longing of your heart. But you've got to team up with me in this. You've got to yield to my lordship. You've got to submit to my authority in your life. And then I'll give you rest. Oh, I just want to learn that lesson. I want to make that real in my life. Well, Mark ends the book or ends this introduction by saying, yet the people still came to him from everywhere. Is that true? They're still coming? Yeah. Yeah. 1954. <laughs> Little kids scared out of my mind that I was going to go to hell. And he said, come on. And I trusted him. I trusted him. That was all it was. CP pointed it out this morning. That's all you can do. You just trust Him. And He's changing my life. What was your date? When did you come to Him? And at that time He said, let's put the yoke on. Let's get to work. The two of us, together. Still kicking and screaming? Are you fighting that yoke? You're looking at somebody that's an expert at fighting the yoke. And yet, my Jesus says, get in step. I'll give you rest. I want people to come to Him. I want this church to reach out 
with the message that we have here in Scripture to those people that live next door to us, those people that we work beside, the people that we run into in, in our the Little League games or whatever it is that we're involved with, I want those people to hear the message. Because <clears throat> it worked in my life. It's working, I should say, in my life. It's working in your life. It will work in the lives of others. There are many people who are still to come to Him. That's still the call. And while there's time, we need to get that message out. I'm excited that we get to study this fantastic story. I'm excited that that story has already begun to change my life. Someday, I'm going to be perfect. Count on it. Yeah? And so are you. Count on it. And those other people that we love and care for, let's get them the message. Let's send them the news. He's here. He's here. And He still wants them to come. Father, save some people. Use our lives if, you're, if you'd be pleased to do that. Use our lives to see some people get saved. Use this message to, to get us back in line and to, to quit, ki- quit kicking against uh, the restraint that you put on our life and help us to recognize that it's a, a loving, caring, gentle yoke. And all we need is to obey. Help us, God. Use the message. Thank you that you're no longer silent. Thank you that you've tuned our hearts. Keep working. We want to vibrate with the beautiful melody that Jesus brings. Make it happen in our lives, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.